Every person and every parent has heard the screams of children. It's not fair. In fact, those three words may come out of our own mouth. It's not fair. But if we are to analyze that word fair, what does it mean to be fair? What is fairness? Is it fair that all seniors, regardless of their income level, get senior discounts? Is it fair that a few spread out in first and business class can enjoy one half of the airplane while the other three-fourths of the plane are sit cramped in economist seat in the back of the plane? Is it fair that additional money be spent on specially designed playground equipment for only the few physically challenged children? In a fascinating article by Dr. Arthur Dorbrin about fairness, he proposes that we fight about fairness because there are three different ideas about fairness. You see, for about a third of us, if we were to define fairness, we would say that fairness equates to sameness. Everything has to be the same for it to be fair, where everything is equal. So that means everyone needs to pay the same price for the theater tickets, the, the movie tickets, whether a child, an adult, or a senior citizen. No one has more privilege than another. That means everyone eats or no one eats at all. Logically then, an infant and a teenager, for fairness sake, should receive the same amount of food. It doesn't matter that one needs more than the other, but it's not fair when we all don't receive the same amount. And so fairness is finding the average and applying it across the board. This is fairness as an equality of outcome. And this is what one-third of the population believes. There is another third that would equate fairness with deservedness. And this notion of fairness, you get what you deserve. If you work hard, if you put in the hours, if you succeed, then you get to keep all that you have earned. Fairness means keeping what you deserve and deserving nothing if it isn't earned. Therefore, the hardest working, the most diligent, the smartest, the most talented should have more because of the hours they put in, the time they put in, and their abilities. The lazy, the indifferent, the stupid, and the inept deserve to have less. Fairness now becomes a rational calculation. This is fairness as individual freedom. And a third of the population believes this. A third of, the third set of individuals would define fairness as the Spider-Man philosophy. That is, if you've seen the Spider-Man movies, you can quote this line, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so this third idea of fairness is that those who have more should give a greater percentage of what they have to help others who are unable to contribute much, if anything at all. Fairness here takes into account the facts that human beings have obligations to one another, and the more one has, the more is demanded of them to contribute to the common good. 
In this philosophy, fairness and responsibility are linked. Compassion plays a role in this calculation of fairness. This is fairness as defined by social justice. As you can see, we can't even come to a common definition of what is fair. The complexities and differences of the definition of fairness are revealed every day in our daily lives. It's very apparent in a school system. Should schools spend the same on each child as implied by fairness number one? Or should the school budget provide more money and resources to the brightest and the most talented, the honor section, the star section children as implied by fairness number two? Or should the school increasingly allocate a greater resource to children with greater needs like special education as implied by fairness number three? And there is a public debate about this. In fact, it is a debate even here in church. Should the church treat everyone the same? Should it afford the same opportunity to every person across the board? Some of you would advocate for this. Or should the church spend more time and resources to those who are truly faithful, to those with ministry talents, to those with greater ministry potential? Should we invest more on these individuals? Or for some, they would say, no, the church needs to spend more on those who are on the fringe of our society because they don't have much, and it is only fair that we provide more for them so that they can come to know Christ. We can't even come to a conclusion with regards to fairness, and yet we scream all day, life isn't fair we look at our lives and we look at the lives of those around us and we have screamed to God it's not fair now why is this issue important of finding fairness in life because unless we can find fairness in this life then we will become very bitter and we will grow to become very angry at life because life isn't fair this is such an important life lesson that Jesus Christ speaks about this in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, as we exposit verses 1 to 16. Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, as we continue our sermon series entitled, Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons from Jesus' Parables. Let me read from verses 1 to 5 of Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. Here in this parable, this story, there's a landowner who needs workers in his field. And so he goes out to hire some day laborers. He finds a few at the crack of dawn around 6 a.m. Because that is how the workday is defined back in those days without running electricity. When the sun rises, the workday begins. 
And so at around 6 a.m., we can say, he finds a few day laborers who are waiting to be hired. They agree to work for the day in his field for a denarius. And a denarius was the going rate, the daily wage for a worker in Jesus' time. Now, for the sake of remembering and contextualizing, since I know that you don't know what a denarius is, let's say they agree to work for a thousand pesos a day. A day's worth of work would earn them a thousand pesos. I'm sure with that rate, some of you would like to work in his vineyard as well. While he's in the marketplace, this landowner is, around 9 a.m., he sees that there are some other day laborers with nothing to do, and he asks them, would you like a job? And they agreed to work in his vineyard for a fair day's wage. He walks around again around noontime, and then 3 p.m., finds more idle workers, and he invites them into his vineyard for a fair day's wage. And then something happens. Look at verse 6 and 7. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one will hire us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Around 5 p.m. in the afternoon, towards the end of the day, perhaps only an hour of sunlight left, an hour of work in the workday, the sun is setting, he finds some more workers who aren't doing anything. He asks them, why are you hanging out? And they tell him, because no one will give us a job. Perhaps because it's almost the end of the day. Why would anyone want to hire someone only for one hour? But the owner says, I'll gladly hire you if you want to work in my field. And so they agreed and he told them, I'll pay you a fair day's wage. Well, since uh, they are... Day laborers, they will be paid at the end of the day. Look what happens, verse 8 and 9. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, his foreman, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. At the end of the day, he calls his foreman to gather his workers to pay them. And surprisingly, he asks to pay those who had only worked for an hour. And when they assembled and came to receive their wage, they were surprised, I'm sure, that they were given a thousand pesos, a denarius. Why so much for only working one hour? We don't know. Perhaps the owner is feeling generous. And he works through the group, those who came in at 3 p.m., those who came in at 12 noon, those who came in at 9 a.m., presumably also giving them a 1,000 pesos. And now we get to the first group who had started working at the crack of dawn, who had started working at 6 a.m. And you can now imagine, perhaps, what's going to happen. Look at verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise receive each a denarius. The group who came in at 6 a.m. perhaps were a bit excited. They recognized that those who work less hours than them had received a thousand pesos. And so they come up with an assumption. 
I want to point something out here. This is their own preconceived notion in their own minds, not part of a collective bargaining agreement. They're not part of a union. This is an assumption on their part because in their minds, it's only fair. If the one who works one hour receives 1,000 pesos, then, then we who have worked 12 hours should receive more. But when they come and they approach the owner, the owner gives them 1,000 pesos. And so naturally, they complain. Look at verse 11 and 12. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. A natural complaint. It's not fair. It's not fair that we who have worked 12 hours receive the same amount as those who have worked one hour. Now, let me see through a show of hands. If you are one of those who worked 12 hours and saw that individuals who worked one hour received the same amount, how many of you would also complain? Show of hands. Wow. I would expect everyone to raise their hand, but I guess the rest of you are either in management, would never join a union, or you are a saint. Because every normal person would raise their hands if they've worked 12 hours and received the same amount as one who's only worked one hour. That means if you didn't raise your hand, you are not normal. Reading this parable again this week, it made my blood boil because in my sense of righteousness and fairness, if I work 12 hours, I receive or should receive more than one who works one hour not fair and now we come to the answer of the owner the owner in the parable represents how God operates God himself we can say and how he responds we will draw three life lessons for how we can find fairness in this life verse 13 look with me but the owner answered one of them and said friend I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Notice how the owner calls these workers friends. He doesn't say, you ungrateful people, you had no job and I gave you a job and now you're complaining about your salary. God understands that this is a very common and natural complaint and so he says, friends, can I ask you a question, friends? Did I do anything wrong to you? And of course, the answer is no. Because at 6 a.m. in the morning, they had agreed to work for a 1,000 pesos a day. It doesn't matter if it was in the heat of the day or how much burden they were to carry. They agreed on a fair day's wage, which was a 1,000 pesos. And that is what the owner paid the employee. It's fair. You see, the first principle I want you to see, number one, if you're taking notes. God deals fairly with each person, here's the key word, individually. God deals fairly with each person individually. 
Look at verse 13. But he answered one of them, an individual encounter, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for denarius? God says, I entered into a relationship, a binding contract with you. Don't look at other people. Don't look at the 9 o'clock group. Don't look at the 12 o'clock group. Don't look at the 3 o'clock group. Definitely don't look at the 5 o'clock group. Look at the 6 o'clock group and look at you. We entered into agreement individually and was I fair to you? Did I give you a thousand pesos? And he did. God deals with all of us fairly because he deals with us individually. He created you and me uniquely. There are no two same people. Each of us are unique physically. None of us have the same retina composition. He gives each of us a unique plan. No two people's plans are the same. And that's a wonderful thing that God has uniquely created us with different life paths so that we are not a copy of someone else. I'm my father's son, but that doesn't mean I follow in my father's footstep. Just like I do not have to deal with the sins of my father, I'm responsible for my own actions. If that is how God has created us and how God has planned for our lives, then therefore doesn't it stand the reason that he deals with us individually when he gives us certain things? My friends, when you look at your life without comparing yourself with others, taking others out of the equation, you'll find that you can actually be pretty content. The problem is when we begin to compare. Here in Asia, I am very much content with my height of 5 foot 10. Because on average, I'm taller than most everyone else. But when I go to America, I'm not so content. Because it seems like my 5 foot 10 height is on the average shorter than everyone else, all those 6 footers in America. Here in Asia, I feel like a giant with my weight of 250 pounds, where it seems like everyone here averages weight of about 150 to 60 pounds. But in America, I'm very content with my weight because it seems like everyone in Texas averages more than 300 pounds. So height-wise, living in Asia is great. But weight-wise, living in America is great. So I am torn between where I should live. When we begin to compare, then we are no longer content. But if you were to take others out of the equation and look at your own life, it would seem that God indeed does deal with you fairly. Look at your life. Examine it. Do you have anything to complain to God about when you don't compare your life with others? That's why often salaries, how much you make, is often held in such great and high confidence in, corporate, in the corporate world. It's not because your salary is the world's biggest secret. Everyone in accounting knows what it is. It's because once you find out how much someone else makes, especially when they are doing less than what you're doing, then at that moment, you are no longer satisfied with what you make. You may be very satisfied with what you make now, 
It provides you a wonderful living. It provides you food and shelter and transportation. But let me tell you what. The moment you find out what someone else makes, especially when they do less than you, that's the moment when you are no longer satisfied by what you make. That's why companies keep salaries confidential. Pastors are not immune from this as well. When we find out that pastors of smaller congregations make more than you, that moment, you don't feel so good anymore. You're no longer content. So you have to ask yourself the question, without looking at anyone else, have I gotten a fair shake from God? Have I or will I get what I deserve from God? And the answer, without looking at everyone else, is absolutely. Note that I said, we'll get. Because when God gives us things, He gives us things in this life and in the life to come. Because I know that some of you may be thinking, God isn't very fair. He gave me these physical ailments. He gave me these sicknesses. He gave me this handicap. But when we look in the future and of the sheer promise of the incorruptible, resurrected body, which is promised and assured for all those who believe in Him, that makes life very fair. There are some who live below the poverty line. They don't even have enough money to go on a proper vacation. But when they think about the glories of the riches of heaven, which has been promised to those who love God, then individually, as we look at our life, both in the present and in the future, God deals with us individually very fairly. Now, we know this truth, but then there must be action to this truth. What should we learn? What should we apply in our life? The second part of the first point, we need to learn to be content. God deals fairly with each person individually, therefore, learn to be content. These life truths are not simply head knowledge truths. They should bring forth a tangible action, the realization that if God treats us fairly as individuals, then that should perpetuate in our life contentment. And some of us who are learning to be content need to get off social media. Let's say you are content vacationing in Baguio. You will be very content going up to the cool north of this country But you know that feeling when as you're scrolling on social media, you see that your friend is in Paris, France. And then somehow your vacation in Baguio doesn't seem very nice anymore compared to Paris. You know that moment when you're content enjoying your very yummy Filipino barbecue stick until as you're enjoying that barbecue stick, you happen to scroll upon your friend who at that moment has posted a picture of him eating a Wagyu ribeye steak. At that moment, let me guarantee you that that barbecue stick doesn't taste very good anymore because now we have begun to compare. Learn to be content. God has dealt fairly with each of us individually. And that's his point in verse 3. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to work for denarius? 
Verse 14, look with me. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Here, the owner says, take the thousand pesos we've agreed on. But if I want to give this worker who has worked one hour the same amount as you, that's my prerogative. That is grace to him. Here's the second thing I want you to see. God is saying in verse 14, if I wish to give him this last man the same as yours, even though he probably, quote-unquote, doesn't deserve it, then that is my grace on him. You see, number two, God deals with each person graciously. God deals with each person graciously, meaning we get what we do not deserve. The man who works for one hour does not deserve to get the same amount as the one who worked for 12 hours. But yet that is exactly what is given by the owner, and we call this grace. My friends, you and I are the recipient of God's grace. When you look at your life, I want you to ask yourself honestly, do you and I really deserve all that we have? Ask yourself the question when you get back home. Do I really deserve all that I have? And I believe the answer is no. You and I don't deserve what we have in this life. You say, but pastor, I've worked hard from the sweat of my brow, from the calloused hands. I've worked hard to receive all that I have. But for many of us, we got a quote-unquote lucky break. For us in our Asian community, many of us when we were born to begin this life we were born into something and not into nothing as many of our countrymen are born into i'm taking a general perspective but in our upper middle class congregation we are who we are today because we got a supporting push from our parents or our grandparents If every one of us had to start like our grandparents from China without the fortune that they give you, I don't think you will have what you have today. That's why they say the rich get richer. Because you have the seed money, the punzi, the seed money to help you make more. Now, this is not something for you to feel guilty about. It's just to show you that God is gracious with us. We get what we do not deserve. It is by God's grace that we were born into families that gave us the push, whether in education or resources, to then be able to expand into what we have today. And if there are some of you who still argue that God has never been gracious in your life, I want you to think about the gracious gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gracious act from God. He gives to each of us undeserving people the opportunity to receive eternal life through the death of His Son, something we certainly don't deserve. He took upon Himself, as the choir sang, the greatest unfairness in life, the iniquity of us all, so that we may receive the greatest favor in our life, which we certainly don't deserve, eternal life. And that is grace in each one of our lives. And so if God is going to deal with us graciously, and He does, what is our response in action? And here's the second part to the second point. Our response in action is that we need to learn to not compare. 
learning to not compare. God deals with each person graciously. Learn to not compare. Listen carefully. Because if we are the recipients of grace, gracious acts cannot be compared. Gracious acts cannot be compared. It is an impossibility to compare what both of us did not deserve in the first place. All right? Let me give you an example of this. Let's say on the street there are two beggars. They are very hungry. They've been begging on the street for three days. They are famished, but no one has given them any food. Some have driven by them and said, well, they need to go find a job. Others have driven by and said, well, I've got my own problems. Whatever the case, two beggars, very hungry, panhandling just for food. Haven't eaten for three days. Then a car stops where they're at and rolls down the window. Let's say the driver is you. And you see their plight, and you had just driven through KFC, and you've got a bucket of chicken, and the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart, and you see the plight of these two beggars, and you roll down your window, and you hand each of them a chicken drumstick. What do you think their response should be? They should be overjoyed. They are now getting food for the first time in three days. But what if, what would be your reaction if one of the beggars looked at his chicken leg and then looked at his beggar friend's chicken leg in his hand and then complained to you, hey, he got a bigger piece. You would be furious. You may even say, fine, if you don't want the chicken leg, give it back. How dare you complain? I gave you all a chicken drumstick. You haven't eaten for three days. And now you're complaining who got the bigger piece. If that ever happened, you'd say, these silly people, you should be happy with what you got. You should be happy with the gracious act that I gave to you. But lest we condemn these beggars in this story, The sad truth is we do it all the time with God. We do it all the time. God, why is my friend's house bigger than mine? God, why is my car not as luxurious as my friend's car? Can you imagine what God on high must be thinking? You silly, silly people. In fact, God was probably outraged. Are you kidding me? You are comparing my gracious act in your life. And yet we do it all the time. I grew up dreaming about having a sports car one day. I had posters of sports cars in my room. You can ask my parents. From Lamborghinis to Porsches. Could never afford them. In college, as a working student, had been self-sustaining since I was at the age of 17. I drove an old jalopy of a car, a 15-year-old minivan that barely ran, and thankfully had functioning air conditioning in the oppressive Texas heat. 
I went to a university on scholarship where most everyone was really rich. If you went to their parking garage, it looked like a luxury car showroom. These freshman 18-year-olds were given often as graduation gifts by their parents, BMW 8 Series, Mercedes CLKs, Porsches and the like. And there I would have to park my jalopy rundown of a car next to Porsches and 8 Series BMWs. I would park my car and get out and I would look at their cars and I would look at mine. And I would say, someday, I will make it in life and I will drive one of these cars. Someday. Fast forward 20 years and more. I don't drive any of these cars and please, this is not an appeal for you to get me one. It's an example. Fast forward 20 years, I drive an Innova. Would any of you look at me and the car I drive and say, you know, I think, Pastor, you haven't made it in life because you don't drive one of these luxury cars. If I were to hear that, perhaps my mind may begin to run about maybe I haven't made it in life. But then I'm reminded that if I do not compare I'm reminded that God has graciously given me a car that runs and given me a car that has air conditioning in this oppressive heat of the Philippines, unlike others who have to take public transportation and wait hours upon hours for a ride in the MRT. God has dealt with me graciously. How dare I even utter the words, it's not fair. You cannot compare grace. God has dealt with us graciously. Learn not to compare. And if you want to compare, compare down instead of comparing up. Then you will learn to be thankful. The third principle found in verse 15. Look with me. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? There is another great truth about how God operates and about who God is. A very specific reminder here in verse 15 that God owns everything on this world. And therefore everything belongs to Him. And if everything belongs to Him... He gets to choose and determine how he distributes his fortunes. You and I cannot demand something of him if it doesn't belong to us. And the Bible has clearly stated everything belongs to him. Now you may argue with me and say, Pastor, there are things that I own. I, I paid for them. I worked hard for these material things I have. Let me ask you this. If you really own what you say you own, then you should be able to take it with you when you die. The fact that you and I cannot take a single thing with us when we die is a clear indication that everything is borrowed. We leave it behind. We are simply to be stewards of what He has given us in this lifetime as He lends it to us. And we'll talk about another parable of the talents, about how God lends things to us, 
talents, resources, monies, and we are to be good stewards of it. But the point is this, if God owns everything, then he can choose to give to anyone any amount he desires because he is sovereign, and you and I do not have a right to question his fairness. Do you agree with that statement? I hope you do. Henry C., the richest man in the Philippines, passed away recently. Did any of you have a say in how he distributed his money? Did any of you, before he died, say, I'm sorry, Henry, you forgot to give me some of your money? And let's say, hypothetically, he did give you some money. Would you dare say, I'm sorry, I didn't get as much as your son, Hans. And I bought a lot of stuff from SM. I deserve more. If any of you, imagine today, were to go to the sea compound, wherever they lived, and knocked on the door and asked one of their kids, by the way, I think your dad forgot to give me some of his money. They'd call security and run you out of town. It's ridiculous. You know, when he died, he probably could have given everyone in the Philippines, all 100 million of us, 100 to 200 pesos. But he chose to only give it to a certain few. Did any of you lose sleep and got angry at him for not giving you what you quote-unquote deserve? Of course not. And we wouldn't do it with someone like Henry C., but then why do we do it with God almost every day? God, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me anything. I want you to underline a phrase in verse 15. So whenever you begin to have these thoughts that you deserve some entitlement from God, look at verse 15. Would you circle these three words? My own things. My own things. If these are God's things, it is His prerogative to give to you if He so wishes. If we really believe that everything belongs to God and what is rightfully His, then His appropriation of those things to us is by His grace. And note, when He chooses to give us certain things, verse 15 reminds us, because I am good, it comes from His good heart. James chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. When God gives to us in His sovereign will, what He gives to us is perfect for us. So let's put this principle together, number three. God has the right to give what He desires. God has the right to give what He desires. And it comes from his good heart for our best. God has the right to give what he desires, and it comes from his good heart for our best. This is the truth about God. What is our response? Our response is to learn to trust. If it is true that every good and perfect gift is from above and God makes no mistakes, then we should trust him well enough to know that what He has given us materially in this life is sufficient for us. Do you ever stop and consider that God chooses at times to withhold certain things from us? 
for our betterment. God chooses to withhold certain things from us so that we don't get greedy, so that we don't lose focus on Him, so that we can remain humble, so that we can cling to Him. Do you ever wonder why God doesn't give us what we want the first time we ask of it? Perhaps it's for our best. I mentioned last week that if I got from God everything I asked for the first time I asked for it, I wouldn't be married to Cindy. I'd have a BMW, but I certainly wouldn't be a pastor. I definitely wouldn't be in the Philippines. If I didn't have any of those things, I certainly wouldn't be having the great life I have now. There are times that God withholds certain things from us in comparison to others for our good, to perfect us, is to draw us nearer to Him. Some of you perhaps are wishing and have been praying that God would just let you win the lottery once. Now, you playing the lottery, that's between you and God. But Lord, just once let me win. Let me get all the numbers. But if you ever were to Google stories about these individuals who won the lottery, close to 70% of them wished they never won it in the first place. I know some of you are thinking, Lord, give me that opportunity to prove this statistic wrong. Bud Post from Pennsylvania, U.S., won $22 million in 1988. And he said it ruined his life. $22 million ruining your life? Could it happen? He says, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. Well, he certainly lived a colorful life. After he won the lottery, his brother hired a hitman to kill him in the hopes of getting his hands on his millions. The murder attempt failed. Then Bud was successively sued by his landlord and his part-time girlfriend, and they garnished a third of his winnings. He blew the rest on terrible business deals, lavish purchases, and multiple marriages, eventually living on food stamps to survive. In 2006, at the age of 66, this seven times married father of nine died broke. Rarely anyone, barely anyone came to his funeral as he was estranged from most of his family. Luke Pittard from Wales, UK, returned to his poorly paying job flipping burgers at McDonald's just 18 months after he won 2.3 million pounds. He said, I loved working at McDonald's before I became a millionaire and I'm enjoying being back here again. You've heard it said, money does not buy happiness. God gives each of us just enough in His sovereign wisdom for our best, for what we need. If any of you ever question why God would withhold things from your life because He doesn't love you, perish the thought why would you ever doubt that the one who gave up the life of his own son 
to die in your place would withhold anything good from you. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And yet we go around moping in this life that God hasn't been fair to us because someone else got something better and someone advanced in his profession faster than ours. And we forget that the one who died in our place, sent by the Father for unworthy us, why would he send his son and then give us the worst in life? He redeemed us. He freed us from the shackles of sin so that He can lavish upon us His best. And so before the next time you and I want to declare life is not fair, would you stop for a moment and think what you are saying to God and how ridiculous it must be to Him when He wants to cry out, I have given you my son to die in your place. Do we trust him to have the best for us? God never calls us to understand all of his actions in this lifetime. He calls us to trust. And so God has the right to give what he desires. Do you know that the owner never explains to the guys who work 12 hours why he gave to the guys who work one hour the same amount? Because he doesn't owe them an explanation. Just like he doesn't owe us an explanation, he just calls us, to trust in Him. It all belongs to Him. Finally, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. God is the landowner of this story, who will settle all accounts. Some who are very rich and prominent will find their standing in heaven quite low. And others who are humble and poor may find their standing quite high. The Lord gets to decide. And if we can't even figure out how to define fairness in our lives, as we talked about in our opening illustration, then we let the only fair person in the world decide, the one who alone is righteous and just in his character, and he sees all, the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... Finding fairness in this life is not finding fairness in a result. Fairness is found in a person. And if you cannot understand this truth, you and I will become very bitter at life. Fairness is not found in a result. What you deem fair, someone else will say is unfair. Fairness is found in a person. So in that meantime, as we establish and deepen our walk with Jesus Christ, 
so that we can find fairness in life through him. Let us be content knowing that he deals with us fairly individually. Let us not compare because you cannot compare acts of grace and he deals with us all graciously. That we need to learn to trust because he gives what he desires from his good heart for our good. Finding fairness in life. Your struggle to find it ends when you can understand the heart of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I'm preaching to myself, and you know that, because I'm also looking for fairness in this life. Forgive me for the many times I scream at you, it's not fair. Realizing now how silly it is, similar to two hungry people comparing the size of the drumstick they received. You have been eternally gracious in my life, and I know in the lives of everyone here this morning. I pray we will cultivate hearts indeed that is content, that doesn't compare, and learns to trust you and in your actions. Guide us, Lord, as we live this life, that our life's perspective will change to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.